When I was in college, during the time I was in college, my dad, who many of you know was a pastor for many years, my dad had a prison ministry there in the county jail in uh, Corpus Christi. In addition to his regular pastoral ministry, he would go to the county jail in, in Corpus Christi once a week on, on Saturdays. He would go to hold a service for the prisoners there. And God did some amazing things during uh, this time that he ministered to the prisoners. He saved several men. He would preach to the men, saved several men who attended the service, even baptized several of them. They had, they had a baptismal uh, or baptism service there uh, one day. And uh, my dad had this, this portable, a very small portable baptistry, and uh, they would fill it up, and it was just on the floor, and, and the prisoners would, would sit in it, and then he would, they would lie back. He would baptize them by lying back, and they'd sit back up. And several of them were baptized, and uh, a few of them, after they were sent off to prison, after they were convicted, sent off to prison, uh, they would write to my dad and stayed in touch with him. My brother, Osiel, was also very involved in this prison ministry. He would preach in English. My dad would preach in, in Spanish. And um, my brother and I would talk about how, how God was moving and how God was using my dad. And we were kind of typical children. We, we would kind of... I don't want to say we'd make fun of my dad, but we were amused with my dad because he played guitar, but not really well. Uh, so he'd be holding a service, and, um, and my brother told me this. because if I was there, I would play the, the piano, but when I wasn't there, my dad would lead the singing with the guitar. And my, my brother told me he's singing a song, he's strumming, he's, he's singing and strumming in the wrong meter, you know, in the, in the, the wrong uh, time signature, so it's not lining up with what he's singing, and, and my brother was like, and he's just singing away, dad's just singing away, strumming real fast, and the song's kind of slow, and we're kind of laughing, he says, but, my brother says, but the prisoners were just, they're singing, they're crying, they're being moved, they're being touched by God, they didn't care that, you know, the music wasn't all that, you know, uh, great, according to us, you know, but God was, was using that. And uh, it was just something that God was doing, something really special. I remember one time I, I went with my dad to the service. And when my dad and I arrived, we were going to the room where we had the service. And we ran into this man. He was a jailer, a jailer there. It's a man that we both knew because he used to attend the church that my dad pastored. He had, a, he had attended that church in the past, but he was no longer attending because he had left the Lord. He had left his wife. He married another woman, and uh, he wasn't following the Lord anymore. And so when we ran into him, it was kind of awkward. He was working. I mean, he, we said hello, but, uh, but it was kind of awkward. And I remember when my dad asked him how he was doing, and I'll never forget his, his response because he, he told my dad, well, I'm doing fine. Then there was a, a pause. Then he, he said, but I've got this, this big ball of sin hanging over my head. And I remember thinking, well, nobody asked him that. Why did he say that? It was kind of awkward the way he said that. I'm fine, but I've got this big ball of sin hanging over my head. And I'm thinking now to, to the contrast between the prisoners in that jail whose lives were being changed by God and who were seeking God, and who were, who were being changed, they, they were repenting of their sin, they were being transformed. And this man, who had one time had followed God, but had left God's ways to live for himself, what a difference that was. These men 
had repented of their sins, and this man had not. He felt remorse. That's why he said, oh, I've got this big ball of sins hanging over my head. He felt bad. He felt guilty. He, 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 he felt condemned. He felt remorse. But you know, remorse is not the same thing as repentance. Many people cry sins of remorse, but they never repent. So as we, as we conclude, today we're going to conclude this series on temptation. This series called, called uh, Filters. Temptation is never what it seems. I want us to, to look at, at repentance and the role of that and humility and the role of that in resisting the devil and resisting temptation. And we're going to go to James 4, beginning with verse 7. James 4, 7 reads like this. Submit yourselves then to God. By the way, we're going to find out, if you don't know this already, you're going to find out that James is is a practical book of, of the New Testament. James is a Proverbs of the New Testament. It's very practical. Just, you know, James, just, he just tells it like it is, very direct. So here again, verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, Mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. Well, that's pretty solid. Huh? That's pretty plain. It's pretty strong. And I want to talk to you today about resisting the devil. Resisting the devil is important because James says it causes the devil to flee. Resist the devil and he will flee. He says... And that's what we want, don't we? We want the devil to flee. We know he won't flee permanently as long as we're here on this earth. But when we're tempted, at that moment of temptation, we want him to flee. We want him to leave, leave us alone. The time will come, and we, we sang this song just a few moments ago called Soon. The time will come, it's soon and very soon, in which we're going to be with Jesus. And we're going to be with him forever. And at that time, um, our sin will be erased. We sang, our shame will be forgotten. At that time, our soul will at last be fully satisfied. Soon and very soon. But until that day, we're going to face temptation. Until that day comes, we're in a battle. And we have to fight this battle. And so we want the devil to flee. That's why resisting the devil is important. This is spiritual warfare. This is a battle we must fight. This is a battle we've got to engage in. In fact, not, not just James says this, but Peter says this, and Paul also writes this. Peter in 1 Peter 5.8 wrote this. He, he wrote, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And look at verse 9. Resist him. Standing firm. Everybody say resist him. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith. He writes. Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world. Is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So Peter says stay alert. Stay disciplined. When he says be of sober mind. He's saying stay disciplined in your living. Be disciplined in the way you live, especially in your spiritual walk. Have a disciplined life, uh, spiritual life. Have disciplined habits. 
This is important. This is crucial to your spiritual health. This is crucial to your spiritual understanding and to your spiritual power. To learning to resist. To learning to put up a fight against the enemy. You've got to fight back when the enemy comes to tempt you. When he comes to trick you, to deceive you. You've got to be in a place where you can fight back. You've got to learn to stand your ground. Don't give in to temptation. And certainly don't give in to temptation so easily. Don't give in to sinful habits so easily. Put up a fight. Stand firm. Be disciplined in the way that you live. And many people can be disciplined in maybe their, their, their physical habits to stay healthy. I was challenged by, by somebody many years ago, when I was much younger, who, who told me, hey, you know, you're, you seem to be very disciplined and you're running. Use that same discipline in your spiritual life. And, and it was kind of a, you know, I mean, it's something I, I needed to hear at that time. And I think it's, an, it's a lesson for all of us. Many of you are disciplined in how you eat. You're disciplined in how you take care of your body, how you, how you exercise. Be disciplined in your spiritual life because that's part of being alert. That's part of being prepared to stand against the enemy. So resist him, he says in verse 9, standing firm in the faith. And then Paul writes similar things in Ephesians 6. Look at Ephesians 6 beginning with verse 10. He writes this, finally, be strong in the Lord. Everybody say, be strong. Be strong strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand. Say, "Take take your stand. He's telling us, take your stand. Be strong. Take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, he writes, is not against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Everybody say, stand your ground. Stand your ground. Are you getting the point here? What, what God is saying through these writers. You may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. There it is again. Then in verse 14, stand firm then. Again, over and over again, we hear this. We, we heard from Peter, resist him, standing firm. And Paul says, be strong, take your stand, stand your ground to stand, stand firm. He says in verse 14, with the, uh, the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Verse 16, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So Peter and Paul say the same thing that James says when James says, resist the devil. Don't put up with this. Resist him. Fight back against him. And this passage in Ephesians that Paul wrote to the Ephesians is chock full of reminders that we're not called to retreat and defeat. When the devil attacks us, we're not called to cower in fear. We're called to stand firm and to fight back and to be victorious. Not only are we called to do those things, but we're actually equipped to do this with this armor of God that Paul describes. We're equipped to be victorious against the devil's temptations, to be victorious against the devil's attacks. You know, the devil's attacks are real and they're powerful. 
verse 12 that we just read in Ephesians 6 tells us that we have a struggle, not a physical struggle. If it was a physical struggle, some of you are well prepared for that. You could take them on. This is not a physical struggle. He says it's a struggle against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world. How many of you know that there is a dark world out there? Powers of this dark world. And he says against the spiritual forces of evil. Spiritual forces of evil. There are spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. I mean, there are things going on around us that we don't see that are just as real as the things that we do see. There is, a, there is a spiritual world out there. There is a, a realm out there in which the devil attacks. In which the devil is moving. In which the devil is in control. But I want to tell you that the supernatural power available to us it's, is greater than the devil's power. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So if you're in Christ, you're equipped to stand firm. You're equipped to resist, to cause the devil to flee and to be victorious. That's important. Resist the devil and he will flee. But I want to go back to our first text in James. And I want us to see how do we resist the devil. We, we've read, uh, especially this passage in Ephesians, is, is very important how to put on the full armor of God. But I'm not going to go to that right now. I want to go back to James. And I want us to look at a foundational thing. Here that teaches us how we are to resist the devil. James actually tells us right away. Before he even tells us to resist the devil. He says submit to God. Did you notice that? People when I hear a lot of people uh, quote this verse. Say yeah resist the devil and he will flee. Well that's the full sentence. But before that and in context even the verses before that. And the verses after that. What he's talking about is submit to God. So really, uh, the big idea of what I'm trying to get across to you right now is this. We resist the devil by submitting fully to God and to his ways. We resist the devil by submitting fully to God and his ways. It's by submitting to God that we find the power By submitting to God's ways that we find the power to fight back against the enemy. And then what Paul teaches in Ephesians 6, then that that is accessible to us. Now this is a powerful phrase because what James is saying is this. Either we submit to the devil or we submit to God. We're either submitting to the devil or we're submitting to God. When we yield to temptation, when we're fooled by the appearance of evil, or maybe we're not fooled by it, maybe we run to embrace the evil. When we yield to temptation, we're submitting to the devil. That's what that is. We're yielding to the devil. We're submitting to the devil. So James is saying, no, you you have it backwards. Don't submit to the devil. Submit to God and resist the devil. And he will flee. Now, when we, don't, when we don't submit to God, we're rebelling against God. And we know the devil is the ultimate rebel against God. Any uh, anytime we rebel against God and against his ways, we're actually aligning ourselves with the devil who is the ultimate rebel against God. Anytime that we rebel against God, that we ignore God, we disobey God, we walk away from God. 
We're aligning ourselves with the one person who wants to destroy our lives. And we're walking away. We're rebelling against the person who wants to bless our lives. That's why we so often see people who rebel against God and against God's, way, God's ways. And they end up living destructive and painful lives. Because in not submitting to God, they've submitted to the devil and to his ways and to his power. Submit to God, James says. Get it right. He's saying, submit to God, resist the devil. Don't resist God and submit to the devil. Because there are people that resist God. And I've seen it time after time. I've even seen it in a church service like this where maybe we're, we're worshiping or we're praying and the Spirit of God is moving. And I can tell that God is, is wanting to touch hearts and He is touching hearts. And people are resisting what God wants to do. People are, 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 are rebelling against that. So James say, no, 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 don't resist God. Resist the devil and submit to God. Surrender to God and to His ways. Let Him touch you and let Him change you. So what does James say about submitting to God? Well, the first thing, and I'll just give you a couple of things about submitting to God from this passage. First of all, submitting to God means serving Him exclusively. To submit to God means to serve Him exclusively. Only Him. Like when you got married, you you made exclusive vows. Right? To, To love one person. And, and to leave behind everybody else. That's being exclusive. So James talks here about serving God exclusively. Not a little bit of God and a little bit of the world. But only God. All of God. So look back a couple of verses. James 4.4. 4. Again, I'm telling you, James is very blunt. He doesn't pull any punches. And he says it this way. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. You can't get any more clear or direct than that. He says, you're being an adulterer if if you say you love God, but you want to remain friends with the world. You can't do that. To be... A friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. Jesus said it very clearly. He said, no one can serve two masters. You can try, but it can't be done. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and love the world. It's not possible. So so to submit to God means you make a decision to follow God and His ways, to live by His word, and to be empowered by His spirit, and and it's only God, exclusively God. Oh, but how we love to try to live in both worlds, don't we? Because we, we like the church and we like the services, we like the music and we say we love God. But we also love the exciting things of this world. Many people try to live this way. A little bit of God and a little bit of worldly fun. James says, you're an adulterer. You're an adulterous people. You're an adulterous generation. Submit to God and only God. You want to be victorious over temptation? You want the devil to stop beating you up? Sometimes I hear people say, I don't know what's going on in my life. Everything's falling apart. Well, submit to God. I can't get, I mean, everything is against me. I got the card stacked against me. No, actually, when you follow God, everything's stacked in your favor. 
We don't see things that way. If somebody wants to ask a question, you know, we talked about this two weeks ago, the, the original temptation in the Garden of Eden. Somebody asked the question, why would God do that? Why would God put a tree in the middle of the garden that Adam and Eve were not supposed to eat from? Why did he do that? You know, he, he made it difficult for them. Well, first of all, the answer to that question is that uh, love, love requires integrity. It's got to be tested. You want a love that's been proven, not a love that you're, you're, you, know, you don't have any other choice. But secondly, my point is this, that uh, God actually, you know, he didn't stack the deck against them. He actually stacked the deck in their favor. Because even Eve said in her answer to the, to the serpent, when the serpent asked her, did God really say you, you can't eat from any of the trees here? And Eve says, no, no, God said we can eat from any of them. Now think about that. There's, there's this beautiful garden. There's all these trees. And they could eat from any of them. I mean, if God was out there, he, he could have said, okay, see this? Okay, that tree, you can eat from there. Yes, 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 yes. One no. Oh, God, why do you do this to me? You don't want me to have any fun. One no. The rest are all yes. But see, sometimes people say, oh, God, he, he doesn't want me to have any fun. And everything's against me. My life is falling apart. I can't have any fun. It's like, sometimes people, and I've heard people say this, like, like my, like my life is cursed. I, I don't know, you know, everything's going wrong. Everything's going wrong. Well, you know what? Submit to God. Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. You want to be victorious over temptation? You want the devil to stop beating you up? Submit to God. So submitting to God means you serve him exclusively, fully, leaving the world behind. Secondly, submitting to God means serving Him humbly. Humbly. He says in, in verse 6, we're in James 4, 6. James says, but He gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, and he quotes the Old Testament here, God opposes the proud, but He shows favor to the humble. How many of you want God to oppose you? No, we want God to show us favor. And the way to that is to live humbly, to humble ourselves. To live humbly means to understand we need God in our lives. We just can't make it on our own. It might seem like we're doing fine without God. It might seem like, you know what, I'm not even serving God. I got a great job, great family, everything is great. You know what, eventually the wheels come off when you live without God. And it may not be until the day of judgment, but even, you know, if, it's, if it's, everything is great and you think you died, you know, just... Everything went well. After we die, the Bible says, comes the day of judgment. But eventually the wheels come off. But to live humbly means we understand we need God in our lives. I, I can't do this on my own. I, I'm in over my head without God. It means we call on Him. It means we call on Him uh, to ask Him to forgive us. Because to live humbly, additionally, means that we learn to repent of our sins. A humble person repents of his sins or her sins. A humble person doesn't say, I don't think I've ever asked God for forgiveness in my life. No, that's not humility. That's pride. And God opposes the proud. To live humbly means we learn to repent daily of our sins. Now look at verse 8. Verse 8. Come near to God and He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, 
you double-minded? You know, he's talking about those who love God and love the world. And he said, remember he said, you're adulterers, you can't do that. But he says, wash your hands, you sinners. Now, how many of you like being called a sinner? You know, we, we don't like to use that word. You know, we, we don't like it. But, but we need to understand that without God, we're in a sinful state. And the truth has to be known of our spiritual condition. The truth has to be told. Someone has to tell us the truth. And God is telling us the truth when He says, Wash your hands, you sinners. What would you think of a doctor who didn't want to hurt your feelings, so he didn't tell you that you were sick? You have to know the truth about your physical condition so you can be treated. Right? You can't say, well, that doctor's mean. He said, I... He said, I'm sick. Well, he needs to tell you that so you can be treated. So God is saying, without him, you're in a sinful condition. Wash your hands. And wash your hands speaks of our outward actions. We've got to repent of our sins. We've got to determine to change our ways. Because there are things that that we know are wrong. You know, I, I remember when I was young and I was a teenager. And I'm trying to sort out my beliefs and things. I mean, I believed in God. I was, you know, I wasn't. Doubting that, uh, I had questions, a lot of questions. And, uh, and there were things that were, to me were a gray area. Is this right? Is this wrong? And I, I guess there still are things for some people. But I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about things that we know are wrong and we do them anyway. I mean, let's not even worry about the, the things in the gray area. Because we're messing up way back over here when we know this is wrong and we still do it. And James says, wash your hands, you sinners. He's saying... Put an end to your sinful actions. With God's help, put an end to your sinful habits. Purify your hearts refers to keeping our hearts and minds clean by what we allow in our hearts and our minds. Everything you watch, everything you read, everything you listen to, everything you see enters your heart, enters your mind. It either contaminates or it purifies. Purify your heart means you decide to fill your mind with good things, with pure things, with holy things, with God's word, with clean thoughts. And you reject those things that will contaminate your mind, will come back to haunt you even years later. Images that will not leave you alone. Purify your hearts. That's why Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, he said, and here's a list of what we should dwell on. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And the the Bible scholars would, would tell us that that word think means to actually dwell to think deeply. Dwell on those things that are, that are right, that are noble, that are pure, that are true, that are lovely, that are admirable. Dwell on those things and reject the things contrary to that. And then he says here in verse 9, Grieve, mourn, wail, change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought we were supposed to be happy. I thought God came to change my mourning into dancing, my grief into joy. Isn't that what God came to do? Well, yes, that's what He does. But before that, we must repent of our sins. And this refers to the act of repentance. This refers to the sorrow for our sins. When He says, grieve, mourn, well, 
Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. He's talking about recognize your sinful condition apart from God. And when was the last time you cried over the fact that you're far from God? Over the fact that you're hurting God? That you're disobeying God? Over the fact that you've set your life in a trajectory away from God? And in a place where Satan can attack, can attack you? It's time that we felt the sorrow for our sins. Beyond just the remorse... Or the guilt, because we know we did wrong, but the sorrow for our sins. We must first repent. That's what it means to live humbly. Submit to God by repenting daily. Then you'll be able to resist the devil so he can flee. Now let me just finish with this. Verse 8. He says, come near to God. And he will come near to you. Verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. This is the step we must take to draw near to God and to humble ourselves. To draw near to God. He says, come near to God and he will come near to you. All right. So he's given us this contrast. All right. He says, resist the devil and he will flee. Come near to God and he will come. See that? Resist the devil and he will flee. Come near to God, and God will come near to you. That's, and that's the option we have. I mean, there it is. Those are the two things we can do. We can't say, well, you know, I'm not ready to come near to God, but I'm not going to go to the devil. I'm just kind of staying in the middle. You can't stay in the middle. There is no middle. James is telling us you're either resisting the devil or you're submitting to the devil. He's saying, resist the devil and come near to God. There is no middle ground. We, we, we want there to be a middle ground. But remember what Jesus said to one of the churches in the book of Revelation. He says, I know your works. I know, I know how you are. I know that you're neither hot nor cold. You're just warm. And because you're warm, he says, you're repulsive. You sicken me to my stomach and I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I'm going to literally vomit you out of my mouth because you're warm. He says, I'd rather you be cold than to be warm. But I want you to be hot. There is no middle ground. You know when Jesus returns. We, we sang about Jesus coming soon. When Jesus returns. For his church. Jesus made it very clear. He says there will be two men out in the field. One is taken. One is left behind. Just two. There's not a third one there. There's not one who was kind of in between. Trying to decide. No. Just either you're coming near to God. And resisting the devil. Or you're submitting to the devil. And rebelling against God. Jesus said two will be lying in the bed. One is taken. One is left behind. Just two. Not a third. There's not a third uh, category. Just two. So. The challenge for us today. We, we want to be victorious over sin. We want to learn how to resist the devil. We want to stand firm. We want to fight back. It starts with submitting to God. Exclusively to God. Sold out. Hearts on fire for God. Repenting. Humbly. Living, living humbly for Him. Repenting daily. Submit to God. Then you'll be able to resist the devil. So He can flee.